Morning. Good to see you guys. Let the kiddos slip out of here. Open your Bibles with me, if you would. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, one of the very best things about the scriptures is just how darn truthful they are. They are so very truthful. The scriptures present life and all of its complexities as it really is. It, it does this over and over again. It presents all of life and all of its complexities as it, is, as it really is. I've said this before. I'm sure I'll say it again. Um, the Bible is never cynical, but it is always realistic. It's never cynical, but it is always realistic. It's, it presents life as it really is, with all of its ups and downs, with all of its twists and turns, with all of its uh, frustrations, with all of its forward motions of life and the backward motions of life. It presents it even with the three steps forward and two steps back that often takes place in the Christian life. Let me ask you, has your Christian journey, has there been moments when it's been three steps forward and then two steps back? Probably. I'm, I'm guessing that's probably been the case. And this reality that the Bible is, is especially clear about the complexities of life, it becomes really clear when you study the scriptures, especially when you study the lives of individual Christians, of believers who walked with God, and when you look upon their lives, we see the twists and turns. We see the ups and downs. We see the three steps forward and the two steps back. The Bible doesn't gloss over the failures of God's people. Which is, again, one of the beautiful things about the scriptures. It's one of the things that speaks to its truthfulness. Is it doesn't gloss over the failures of God's people. Even the people who the author of Hebrews says that are heroes of the faith. It doesn't gloss over their failures. And we see this in the life of Abraham. In our study of the book of Genesis, we've spent the last ten weeks looking into the life of Abraham and God's God's interactions with him, God's dealings with him. And as we've been working through the accounts of Abraham's life, we've seen the progression of Abraham's faith. We've also seen the regression over and over again. We've seen progress and regress over and over again. His story, like many of our stories, is truly three steps forward and two steps back. Think about what we've seen over the last ten weeks as we've looked into Abraham's life. In the very first part, in... um, Genesis chapter 12, we see the Lord come to him, and he makes this incredible call on Abraham's life. He says, Abraham, I want you to get up and leave your family behind. Leave your country behind. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's an incredible call on Abraham's life. To go forth not knowing where you're going. Especially, even more so, when you're 75 years of age. So it's an incredible call, but it's also filled with an incredible promise because the Lord tells him that out of Abraham, he would make him a great nation. And the Lord would bless him, and he would make his name great. And those who bless Abraham would be blessed, and those who cursed Abraham would be cursed, and all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. So it's an incredible call on Abraham's life, and it's also an incredible promise. And what does Abraham do? Well, he obeys the Lord, and he walks in obedience. He steps out in faith. It's really quite remarkable. But then the very next thing that we see, Abraham, in a moment of fear, a moment of unbelief, he goes down to Egypt. He heads south to Egypt. And when he gets into Egypt, he decides he's going to lie to the king. And he tells his wife, Sarah, to identify not not as his uh, wife, but as his sister. So he has his wife lie for him. I mean, honestly, that's more moronic than heroic, right? But this is what he does. He says, when we get down there, when we go south into Egypt, I want you to lie for me. 
And then in chapter 13, so we see a progress with him, we see regression. Then in chapter 13, he does the really remarkable thing. He lays aside his rights and his authority, and he lets his nephew Lot take the pick of the land. And Abraham trusts that the Lord's going to provide for him, and he doesn't need to manipulate the situation. So he does something that's really quite remarkable. And then in chapter 14, what he does is even more heroic. His nephew Lot is captured by the eastern kings, and Abraham and his men, they go and uh, they rescue him. They rescue Lot. That's followed up by chapter 15, where the Lord renews the covenant. And Abraham believes, takes the Lord at his word. And we read that it was credited to him as righteousness. So three steps forward. Abraham's really walking with the Lord. He's definitely taking some steps forward. He's progressing in his faith. And you as the reader, if you're reading it, just as a narrative, you're reading it and you're thinking, way to go, Abe. You're getting this down. Onward and upward, I'm sure, from here in Abraham's life. And then you come to chapter 16. And the story of Hagar. And yeah, it was Sarah's plan. You can say that. Well, this was Sarah's plan to take matters into her own hands in order to fulfill God's promise of a child being born to Abraham. So you could say that, and, and she does. She comes to Abraham and she says, I want you to sleep with Hagar, my maid, my maid service. And yes, it was culturally acceptable at that time for that to take place. And yet, it completely went against God's good design for marriage. And Abraham, as the husband, as the leader in the home, he could have said, hey, honey, this isn't really a good decision on your part. And I know you want me to sleep with her, but I'm going to pass up on that opportunity because this goes, this violates God's design for marriage. And as the leader of the household, we're going to trust God's going to provide for us in another way. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He, he becomes passive, just like Adam did before him. He, he becomes passive. He doesn't step in and lead his family. And it was certainly one of Abraham's dumbest and darkest moments. So he takes a step back. Chapter 17, the covenant's renewed again. And the Lord gives him the sign of the covenant, which was for Abraham and everybody within his house, both those who were born to him and those who were his servants, he's to get them all, they're all to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And Abraham, he responds obediently. He, and that very day he gets circumcised and every male in his house Get circumcised. That's quite a party when you think about it, because he had at least 318 guys who were working for him at that time, and he's 99 years old, and he's like, I don't, you, one of my questions when I get to heaven is, how did you talk all these guys into getting circumcised when you're 99 years, hand, 99 years old with a stone saying, here, just let me cut you a little bit? I don't know how that happens. I don't. That's my, my first question for Abraham when I see him. How did you convince him to do this? But he responds obediently. He, he says, the Lord has told us to do this. Apparently all the guys say, okay, if you say so. And they, he responds obediently. It's this amazing thing. The next thing we see in chapters 18 and 19, um, Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah particularly for his nephew Lot and his family. And his intercession on behalf of Lot is the catalyst the Lord uses to rescue Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, you're reading it as a narrative and you're thinking, yes, he's progressing. Surely this is, this is the way of faith. This is how it's going to go from Abraham from this point forward. Nothing but onward and upward for Abraham. But then you come to chapter 20. Take a look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, which is where we're going to be today. And what you'll see is after the three steps forward of Abraham, he again takes two steps backwards. Instead of progression, we see regression. We're going to see Abraham go back to his old ways. Back to his old sins. And as you get into chapter 20, you'll quickly see it's so very similar to the second half of chapter 12. In fact, it's so similar um, that some liberal scholars 
will say this is just a different trans, a, diff, a different, um, a different tradition of the same story. And the editor of Genesis just kind of stitched them together. That's oftentimes what you'll see in liberal commentaries. Is this is the same account, just a different, just a different tradition of the same account, and, and the editor of Genesis just kind of stitched these stories together. Um, but I don't think that's actually the case. That's an assumption on their part. And it's a faulty one, I think, for at least two reasons. First of all, because I think Moses is very intentionally including an inclusio. Do you guys know what an inclusio is? Okay, good. There's a reason. I, sometimes I have to justify the cost of seminary to my wife. And this gives me that opportunity. Um, an inclusio is a literary device which creates a frame or a bracket. It creates a frame and a bracket by placing similar material at the front of a section and at the end of a section. And I think that's exactly what Moses is doing here. Because right after the promise was given, the promise of the, 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 the child to come, right after that promise is coming, that, that promise is given, Abraham goes south, enters into a kingdom, and lies about Sarah's identity. And then, at the very end of this section, Abraham, what we're going to see today, he heads south, he enters into a kingdom, and he lies about Sarah's identity. And the very next scene is the promised child is born. And so I think Moses, what he's doing is he's in, he includes an inclusio so that the reader will say, Aha, right after this, the child must be coming. And it's, a, it's in Hebrew, it's a, it's a tip-off to the reader that this is what's coming. So it's an inclusio, inclusio to the reader. Second reason I think that's faulty is because I think Moses is showing us what the real life of a believer is like. What the real life of a believer is like with all of its setbacks. With all of its progression and all of its regressions. Because oftentimes our lives are three steps forward and two steps back. Three steps forward, two steps back. That's certainly the case in Abraham's life. That's certainly the case in my life. And my hunch is... That's certainly the case in your life. And so this real simple story, and you, when you read it, it takes you five minutes to read it. And you're probably thinking, good, we'll get out of here really early today. It's not the case. There's a lot here. There's, it's really simple to read, but it teaches us gigantic truths about our reoccurring sin nature. Which means it's not all that pleasant of a passage when you slow down and you think about it because it points out to you Oh, you're a lot like Abraham. You take three steps forward, you take two steps back. Well, how do you respond to that? So, uh, Genesis chapter 20, and we're going to move pretty quickly through the text. And let me tell you what we'll see, and then we'll go and we'll see it. Um, here's what we'll see in verses 1 through 2. It is Abraham's deception. Verses 1 through 2, Abraham's deception. Uh, what he'll do is Abraham will deceive Abimelech, the king of Gera. Um, just as he had done, he had deceived Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So it's second verse, same as the first. Um, he deceives just in the same way he has done before. Verses 3 through 7, we'll see the Lord's intervention. The Lord intervenes and he keeps the king from sleeping with Sarah. You know, the Lord is so slick with it. Um, he's so sovereign. Slick with it is just another way of saying sovereign. When Sarah is given into this kingdom, the Lord says, oh, you're going to jeopardize the promise again? Here's what I'll do. I'll just make everybody in this kingdom some type of sexual malady so nobody in this kingdom can uh, have sex or conceive. Well, hello. Um, this is how involved the Lord is in this intervention. He says, you're going to threaten the promise again, Abraham, in the same way. Are you this dumb, Abraham? So here's what we'll do. We'll make sure that none of the men in this kingdom can have sex. Now, don't ask me how he does that. I have theories. But don't ask me how he does it. And he ensures that none of the women can conceive. And we'll see that the very last verse. The Lord releases this from them. But while Sarah's there, in their midst, he says, no hanky-panky is going to take place. 
Nothing's going to threaten my promise. So the Lord intervenes. Third thing we'll see is Abimelech's confrontation. That's in verses 8 through 13. This pagan king rebukes God's prophet. (laughs) Think about that. A pagan king rebukes God's prophet. How off base are we when the surrounding pagan culture has a higher standard than we do? That's how off base Abraham was. So you got Abe's deception, the Lord's intervention, Abimelech's confrontation, and then lastly you have Sarah's restitution. Abimelech will declare that Sarah's innocence in the eyes of all and make this generous restitution. Okay, let's get into it. Verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gera. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So last time we saw Abraham, he was by the Oaks of Mamre, which was um, kind of west of the Dead Sea. And now we, we read, and we're not really told why, but Abraham heads south, down into the desert, towards the Sinai uh, Peninsula. And he comes into the Philistine city of Gerar. Uh, he, by the way, he's promised all this land, but at this point, he's still a sojourner in it. But he comes into Gerah, and just like when he and Sarah came into Egypt, he lies about Sarah's identity, saying that she's his sister. Now again, uh, technically, she was his half-sister, but her primary identity is as Abraham's wife. But again, Abraham goes back to his old ways, and he deceives And this becomes a pattern for him. And when you read this account, at least when I read this account, I thought, no, no, Abraham, not another audition tape for the Jerry Springer show. We do not need this. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And we see the reason why. Skip down to verse 11. Uh, The king, uh, like I said, a guy by the name of Abimelech, He actually asks this question. He says, what have you done to us? Why have you done this? And Abraham responds, verse 11, I did it. Now look at his assumption here. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. So this deception is driven by his fear. Um, Fear makes us do all sorts of irrational things. Is that not true? I know that's true in my own life. Uh, fear makes me do all sorts of irrational things, and that's the case here. And so once again, you see Abraham, the man of faith, living and acting as the man of fear. And he's trying to, he's trying to secure his own survival by his own means. And the means in this case are Sarah. He's, he's not trusting the Lord would protect him. He's not trusting that the Lord would go before him. He's not living out of his faith at all. He's living in fear. And so for a second time, he deceives a king. This time he deceives Abimelech, the king of Gerah. But thankfully for the Lord, or thankfully for Abraham and Sarah, what we see in verses 3 through 7 is that the Lord intervenes. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. And said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's, another man's wife. The Lord comes to him in a dream and says, You're a dead man. <laughs> that is not the type of dream you want to have. That would jolt you out of bed. And in Genesis, dreams are, uh, particularly in Genesis, dreams are oftentimes the means of divine revelation. And the recipient of the dream, they know that they're speaking to the divine. And so the Lord tells Abimelech, you're a dead man because of Sarah. If you do anything with this woman, you're a dead man. And Abimelech, he he responds, whoa, 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 hold on here, Lord. I haven't touched her. And the Lord says, yeah, because I haven't allowed you to. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. And so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. Now note that, because Sarah's involved in it as well. It wasn't just Abraham. It was Abraham's plot, but 
Sarah carried it forth, just like Hagar when it was Sarah's plot, and, and Abraham carried it forth. They're working in conjunction here. And he said, and she, she said, uh, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Man, and if you're in that dream and, and he's just deceived you like this, and he turns around and says, no, he's actually a prophet of mine. You've got to be like, my goodness, the Lord has really low standards of who he will use. What is this about? He says, no, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you are surely to die, you and all who are yours. So um, note that it was the Lord who, um, it was the Lord, the Lord says to Abimelech, in regards to him not violating Sarah, he says, I've kept you from sinning against me. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the sin would ultimately, I mean, relationally, it'd be against Sarah. I mean, if he, if he were to take Sarah, it would have been violating Sarah. But he says, ultimately, all sin is against me. Which means all sin at its root level is ultimately rebellion against the Lord. Is it not? This is what David says in Psalm 51, after Nathan rebukes him. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and your judgment is justified. And the Lord in his faithfulness to the promise, now that's the key. The Lord in his faithfulness to the promise that he gave to Abraham and Sarah, he keeps Abimelech from violating her. So that the promised offspring would really come from Abraham and Sarah. And so you've got the deception of Abraham and Sarah. You've got the intervention of the Lord. And now in verses 8 through 13, we'll see a confrontation between Abimelech and Abraham. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. You better believe it. As soon as the Lord spoke to him, he probably got out of bed. Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all of these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Um, You get the impression that, you know, Abimelech just keeps hitting him. What what have you done? Why are you doing this? You've done things to me that ought not to be done. You get the impression that Abraham is like a boxer who's taken one too many body blows and he can't respond. Because he he doesn't, Abimelech just keeps going with these blows to him. Look at verse uh, 10. Notice, Abraham doesn't respond. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, after he's already confronted him once, he just keeps going. Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham says, we've already read it, but we'll read it again. He says, I did it. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me. They will kill me because of my wife. So he tries to justify it. Abraham does note that. He tries to justify it. Even though Abimelech and his people, at least in this moment, they have more fear of God than Abram does in this moment. So he tries to, he tries to justify it, and then he tries to rationalize it. Look at verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So first he tries to justify it, then he tries to rationalize it, and then he tries to brush it away by kind of putting it on God. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, back in Genesis chapter 12, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, 
this is the kindness. I said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Aha. Uh-huh. So this wasn't just a one-time thing. This was a reoccurring pattern in Abraham and Sarah's life. And remember, they lived a very nomadic life. So who knows how many times this actually took place. We have two that are recorded here. But this could have happened all over the place. This looks to be a very reoccurring sin. Which we would say it's become a habitual sin. It becomes a reoccurring pattern of their life. They did it once. Kind of kind of turned out okay. So they did it again. At least twice that we've seen. And we know they lived a nomadic lifestyle. They probably tried it again and again and again. It becomes this habitual thing in their life. This reoccurring pattern of their life. And now in verses 14 through 18, we'll see the restitution. Sarah's restitution. Abimelech makes restitution to Abraham on behalf of Sarah. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. This is so similar. Think back to Genesis chapter 12. It's so similar to what happened in, in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh enriched Abraham with male and female servants and with livestock. But Pharaoh, he kicked him out of Egypt. He's, he gave him the boot. He said, get out of here. Abimelech, on the other hand, he enriches Abraham with all sorts of servants and livestock. But then further, he allows Abraham to pick the choicest land. Just go where you want. Pick the land, stay in the land. So he, he enriches him even more. And then he turns to Sarah, verse 16. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother. <laughs> Little bit of a dig right here by the king. Oh, hey, yeah, I've given your brother, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. A thousand pieces of silver was a gigantic sum of money. Um, one commentator says it would take a, a typical man of that day anywhere from 150 to 160 years to earn a thousand pieces of silver. So this is, he's making restitution at an incredibly high rate. So, why? Well, look at it. I've given, uh, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. In the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone that you are vindicated. He's saying you are completely vindicated. No one may say that anything happened here that would have hindered um, Sarah. Sarah, nobody's touched her. She's completely innocent. That's, he's making that point. Moses is making that point because the child, the promised child is about to be born. He's saying nobody, let everyone know. Moses is making this really clear. Let everyone know that the child that will come from Sarah is Abraham's child. And Abimelech is saying she's completely innocent in all of this. And then, verse 17, Abraham takes up his role as intercessor again. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Go ahead and stop right there. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward story, isn't it? Pretty straightforward story. I mean, you read it, it takes you five minutes. But the more you think about it, and the more you meditate on it, the more you dig down into it, there's so much there to teach us. And so I want to spend the remaining time focusing on what we learn from this passage. And there's three really important truths that we need to grasp. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll, we'll go back and we'll work our way through them. What do we learn out of this passage? Here's what we learn. We learn the reality of our reoccurring sin. The reality of our reoccurring sin. Second thing we learn is the devastating consequences of our sin. Devastating consequences of our sin. Here's the third thing we learn. The way forward from our sin. So the reality of our reoccurring sin. The devastating consequences of our sin. And the way forward from our sin.
So the first one, the reality of our reoccurring sin. Um, when Abimelech confronts Abraham, notice that Abraham blames everybody but himself. Very much in the mode of Adam and Eve. He blames everybody else, but then he lets the cat out of the bag by saying, everywhere Sarah and I go, I tell her to lie so that we can deceive people. And that sin becomes a, it becomes a pattern in their lives. It becomes a reoccurring sin. It, what, it's what in the church world, in old church particularly, um, we would call it a besetting sin. We would call this a besetting sin. You know what a besetting sin is? John Calvin has probably the best definition of it. Calvin, in his commentary, calls besetting sin a deeply worn, deeply worn channels of our corrupt nature. The deeply worn channels of our corrupt nature. That's besetting sin. Um, the reason besetting sin is an old church term and not a new church term is because the new church doesn't really like to talk about sin. So it is it is old churchy, this idea of besetting sin, these deeply worn channels of our corrupt nature. And sin knows the well-worn channels of our corrupt nature. Do you ever find yourself saying, why did I do this again? Does that ever happen to you? Why did I do this? Why did I think this? Why did I do look at that? Why did I do this again? Whether it's taking a drink or popping a pill or going to a website for the 10,000th time or having an outburst of anger at your spouse or gossiping or putting somebody down in order to prop yourself up. Why did I do these things? Let me ask you, do you have deeply worn channels in your life? No. No, not me. Maybe somebody else, but not me. And the reality is we do. We all do. And we have to be aware of our reoccurring sin nature. Because Scripture affirms it, that we all have this. When you look at Scripture, you clearly see God's people still sin. They shouldn't. There's no justification for it. There's no excuse for it. There's no license for it. But the reality is that Christians, people of faith, do still sin. You see it right here in the life of Abraham. In fact, when you read both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, they acknowledge the reoccurring sin nature. In Romans chapter 7, I won't make you turn there, but in Romans chapter 7, Paul says this. See if it resonates with you. Paul says, the good that I, I want to do, I find myself not doing. And I find myself doing the evil that I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of evil? That's Paul. And my hunch is that's you. My hunch is, well, not my hunch. I know that's me. We continue to sin. John. John in 1 John 1 writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So the Christian life is three steps, oftentimes, three steps forward and two steps back. You see it in the apostolic witness. You, you see it, the apostolic witness says that you will continue to struggle with sin. You look at the, the biblical characters that we see, the biblical examples, and you see it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They battle against the sin nature. They battle against reoccurring sin. Abraham, the man of faith, is also oftentimes the man of fear. And his fear drives him to make some really terrible, sinful choices. David, the man after God's own heart, a man filled with great passion for God, was also filled with great passion and chased after Bathsheba. And then made even a stupider decision by having Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And then lives for a long time, probably at least a year outside of fellowship with God. You think of Noah, who we looked at earlier in our study of Genesis, and Noah was the most righteous man on the earth at one point. And then after, after the flood, he plants a vineyard, and he becomes the most drunk man on the face of the earth. 
It gives into the sin of drunkenness. You think of the New Testament. You look at Peter. Peter the rock. Peter so bold, so courageous for Jesus, and then later denies him three times before a little girl. And you may think, well, yeah, but that was pre-Pentecost Peter. Hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. And you're right, okay. But even after Pentecost, even after being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter's so afraid of um, the guys from Jerusalem when he's down in South Galatia. He won't eat with... He won't eat with the Gentiles. Even after the Gentiles have been fully incorporated into the body of Christ, Peter won't eat with him out of fear of what the Jews may think. And Paul has to rebuke him and says to him, Peter, you're not walking out. You're not walking in step with the gospel. So the apostolic teaching says that we will struggle with sin. The biblical examples say that we will struggle with sin. The post-biblical witness of heroes of the faith also will continue to battle with sin. Church history shows this to be the case. Do you guys, you guys know the name John Newton? Most of you? John Newton, the great hymn writer who wrote the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That once saved a wretch like me. You may not know, uh, Newton, as, in addition to being a prolific hymn writer, he was also a pastor. And he was a great pastor. Um, listen to what he says. He writes this, he writes a letter to another pastor about his life. And here's what he writes. He says, alas, my dear friend, you know not what a poor, unprofitable, unfaithful creature I am. If you knew the evils which I feel within and the snares and the difficulties which beset me from without, you would pity me indeed. Indwelling sin Presses me downwards. When I would do good, evil is present with me. There is much darkness in my understanding, much perverseness in my will, much disorder in my affections, much folly and madness in my imagination. In short, he says, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistency. Do you ever feel like that? I'm a riddle to myself and a heap of inconsistency. Gosh, I do. I read that this week and I thought, oh man, he is describing my life. I'm a riddle to myself and a heap of inconsistency. The reality is there's a pattern of reoccurring sin in all of our lives. And we have to acknowledge it. We don't justify it. It doesn't give us license to go and sin more. But we have to acknowledge it. That just like Abraham, we have a tendency, we have sinful tendencies within us. So we, what do we learn here? We learn the reality of reoccurring sin. Now, why is that important, by the way? Why do I tell you that? Here's why. There is some groups, uh, there's a movement in, in evangelicalism called the holiness movement. And they will tell you, it's a fine group, but they will tell you that once you become a Christian, you should never sin again. And and you will be growing, and you should be growing in your sanctification, but they will tell you, you will be growing in your sanctification to the point that you will become sinless in this life, in this age. And I, I when I was in Washington pastoring up there, across the street from us was a church, from across the street from the church that I was at was another church, and a pastor came over one day, and he was distraught over some of the sin in his life. And he said, I don't understand, I should not ever be sinning again. And I said, when was the last time you read Romans? Or when did you read 1 John? When was the last time you read 1 John? You will always be battling. But note the key phrase here, battling. You will always be battling the sin within us. There should always be this tension of I'm battling against my sinful tendencies. So what we learn here is the reality of reoccurring sin. That's the very first thing we learn. Here's the second thing we learn. We see the devastating consequences of our sins. We see the devastating consequences of our sin. That's one of the reasons these narratives are in here. is so that we would see the devastating consequences of our sin. These narratives serve as a warning to us and an encouragement. Both a warning and an encouragement. Again, this is why the scriptures are so darn refreshing. Because... 
they deal with the reality of our reoccurring sin nature. They serve as an honest warning to us. And they show us exactly some of the consequences of our sin. And there's at least four consequences of sin in this text. Well, what are they? Here's the first one. Sin threatens God's plan for our lives. It actually threatens God's plan for our lives. Derek Kidner, um, Kidner, in his commentary on this section, listen to what he says. He says, on the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise put in jeopardy. Traded away for personal safety. That's exactly true. Yes, God's faithful to his promise. Yes, he will get us to where we want to be. But don't miss that the sin of Abraham, the sin that Abraham commits, is very much a threat that God has to overcome. So it threatens God's plan for our life. Here's the second thing it does that we see here, one of the consequences, is it distorts the shape of our character. Sin very much distorts the shape of our character. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Reap a character or sow a character and you reap a destiny. Now listen, that's certainly true in the life of Abraham. Sin has distorted the shape of his character. He had this thread of fear that was running through him. And it kept manifesting itself in deception. And you and I, we need to know and grasp in our hearts that if we continue to persist in sin, and, and, and let me say it like this, um, if we continue to persist in the sin that you are so prone to go back to, because all of us have a sin nature that gets manifested in different ways. It gets expressed in different ways in each one of our lives. We all have different tendencies. Um, we all have a different slant on our sin nature. But if you continue to persist in the one sin or the besetting sins in your life, if you continue to persist in those besetting sins in your life, it will, it will eventually distort our character. You need to recognize that that sin will, is always shaping you. It's always shaping you. It's shaping our future decisions. If you give in to it today, and you don't take, if you give in to that sin, that besetting sin this, this day, it becomes a little bit easier to give in to it tomorrow. It's always shaping our future. It's always shaping our future choices and our future character. So it's, it's distorts the shape of our character. That's the second consequence that we see out of this text. The third one that we see out of here is it hinders our witness. Sin hinders our witness. Abimelech, I mean, we see this one really, really clearly. Abimelech looks at Abraham and he says, what have you done? Why have you done this to us? You've done things to us that ought not to be done. And we know that, we all know, I, I think, we all know that sin hinders our witness. It hurts our testimony. And that's certainly the case here in Abraham's life. Here's the fourth one that we see really clearly. Is sin infects our family. It infects our family. It's like a virus that gets into your bloodstream. Abraham and Sarah have this besetting sin. And when we get to Genesis chapter 26, actually we have time, turn over to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. What's happening in Genesis 26 is Isaac, Abraham's son, is living with his wife Rebekah and there's a famine. And so look at what happens in verse 6. So Isaac settled in, where? In Gera, just where Abraham was. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Well, second verse, same as the first again. Thinking... For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was, she was uh, attractive in appearance. <laughs> oh my goodness. He does exactly the same thing as his dad. He lies about his wife and he does it for the exact same reason. Which means the old saying is true. What parents excuse in moderation, their children will indulge in excess. And our children will, will reap the bitter fruit of our sinful choices now. They will become 
Just like an alcoholic, their children are predisposed to alcohol. Um, if we engage in sinful lifestyle now, our children will be predisposed to that type of life, that type of sinful choices. And you see it as a parent, do you not? Have you ever watched your kid sin in some way and you look at it and you think, oh my gosh, they're sinning exactly the same way that I do. Has that ever happened to you? I watched one of my daughters throw a tantrum the other day when she was upset about something. It didn't, it didn't turn out the way she'd hoped. And she threw this thing in the air. And I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, I know that. I, I do that exactly. I wasn't proud of this. Was not proud about this at all. But I watched it happen and I thought, that's echoes of me. That's echoes of my sin nature that got passed on to her. Darn it. I was hoping she was going to be like her mom. But it didn't happen. She needs to hang out with her mom way more than she hangs out with me. It's that, it's right there. It infects our family. This is, this right here is an exhortation to parents. Because if we don't take our sin seriously, myself included, if we don't take it seriously, it will infect our family. We gotta put it to death, we gotta put it to death right now. Whatever that besetting sin in our life is, if we don't deal with it seriously now, if we don't cut it off, uh, if we don't put it to, to death, it will infect our family. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, uh, said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. It's really, uh, anyway, it is as stark as that. So what do we learn from this passage? First, the reality of our reoccurring sin. Second, we see the devastating consequences of our sin. And then lastly, we see the way, the way forward dealing with our sin. And I'll give them to you real quick, five ways. Five words, really. First, first words recognize. You recognize the pattern of your well-worn grooves, of your corrupt nature. You gotta recognize the patterns of your own well-worn grooves. And you say, I know when, I know when I'm tempted. I know what the temptation looks like, and I'm gonna be on guard against it. I recognize the sinful tendencies and patterns of my own heart. So you gotta recognize the pattern of your well-worn grooves. Second, you remember. You remember how it turned out last time. What's the way forward? Well, you recognize the patterns. Second, you remember how it turned out last time. If it turned out well, if the Lord helped you in that moment of crisis, in that moment of temptation, then you set your heart to move in that direction it is, whatever it was last time. You ask the Lord to make the gospel beautiful in your sight so you don't give in to something else. You ask your, you ask the Lord to make the gospel beautiful in your heart because all of our heart, all of our sinful tendencies come out of the hearts. You ever wonder why really intelligent men throw away their entire life after an affair. And you look at me and you think, are you stupid? And it's not because they're stupid. It's because something, um, something became more beautiful in their heart. Their hearts were attracted to something. It's not that they were rationally stupid people. It's because their hearts chase after something. And so you guys, you gotta ask yourself, well, what does my heart chase after? What is the idol in my heart that I'm constantly chasing after? So you gotta remember, you gotta remember how it turned out last time. If the Lord helped you, remember what that looked like and move in that direction, set your heart to move in that direction. If you gave into the temptation last time, remember the emptiness that it left you with. It promised you life, but it actually ended up taking it. And it left you empty. So you recognize, you remember. Third, you realize. What's the way forward? You realize that you have a choice. And that's actually really critical in our day right now. Because our culture tells you that you're just a byproduct of your circumstances. You're just a byproduct of your DNA, your biology, or whatever. And we even have a song that promotes it. I mean, the noted theologian, Lady Gaga, says, you're born this way. (laughs) So you just do whatever your biology says. Um, No, you realize you actually have a choice. Because all of us are born with sinful tendencies. But you also have the Holy Spirit living within you. And you can make a choice that says, I don't have to give in to this. I actually belong to the Lord. My body and my mind and my soul belongs to the Lord before it belongs to anything else. And I can trust Him with it. So you realize you actually have a choice. The Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is within you. And you can, by the Holy Spirit, live in accordance to the words and the ways of Jesus. You really can um, so you realize you have a choice. Choice. Here's the fourth one. You repent. You repent of it. If you do sin, if and when you do sin, and you will sin, 
You will, because we have a sin nature. Scripture affirms it. The biblical characters testify to it. Post-biblical saints demonstrate it. So when you do sin, you repent of it. You keep real short tabs with the Lord so that there's nothing keeping you from fellowship with him. So you repent of it. And then lastly, you run to the grace of the Lord. You run to the grace of the Lord. Don't let your sin cause you to run away from Christ. And that happens a lot. People will sin and they will give in to a besetting sin. They'll give in again. They'll give in again. This waging of the war, you lose a couple battles. And sometimes some Christians will throw up their hands and they'll choose to run away from Christ. Don't let your sin cause you to run away from Christ. Run towards Christ and his grace. Because in 1 John 1, 1, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Christian friend, don't let your sin, don't let your unfaithfulness drive you from Christ. Let it cause you Let your sin, when you do sin and you hate it and you feel terrible about it, that's the right feeling. Let it cause you to run to Christ, the sinless one, who was faithful to the Father's plan of redemption all the way to the cross, who has made a way for you to be completely forgiven, to hold and to be clothed in his righteousness, so that no matter how often you give in to your besetting sin, and listen to me, that is not a license to give in to it. But no matter how often you wage the battle and you lose, when you come back to Christ and you say, I repent of this, I'm running to you, I'm clinging to your grace, you're clothed in his righteousness. That's amazing. Let's pray. Why don't you stand? We'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this passage. It is so darn instructive. And nobody really likes to be instructed on sin. I realize that. It just comes so easy for us. We don't even feel like we need instruction. But we do need, Lord, to see it for what it truly is. And so we thank you, Lord, that you give us instruction through the example of Scripture. The narratives are both a warning to us and an encouragement. And we pray, Lord, that when we do fall short, and we know that we will, we know that the battle will continue to wage, be waged inside of each and every one of us, And we pray that you would grant us victory, Lord, that we would lean into the grace of Christ, that the gospel would be so beautiful in our sight, in ever-increasing ways, that we would seriously make some gains forward, Lord. But the times that we're weak, the times that we fail, the times that we fall short, Lord, we pray that we would repent and we would run to your grace again and again. We thank you that because of the work of the cross, forgiveness is there at all times and in every way to the the deepest levels imaginable, Lord. We thank you, we love you in Christ's name. Amen.